Acts chapter 2, verse 36 and following, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And with many other words, He bore witness, and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received His word were baptized, And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. I just finished an interesting book called Why Liberalism Failed. Now, in order for you to understand that book, you need to remember that we in the United States use the word liberalism in a different way than it was used classically. Because we talk about liberals on one side and conservatives on the other. But this book is about why classical liberalism failed. And classical liberalism is the political ideology of freedom, of personal freedom. And both our liberals and our conservatives are heirs of classical liberalism. Now, this is not going to be a political comment. This is an illustration, okay? I do not make political comments from the pulpit where they have no place. This is an illustration because I have found this book not only to be illuminating for my understanding of the political scene, but also for understanding my experience in coming back to the United States and entering into the United States evangelical Christian church culture and being very surprised at some things that I found. What is his criticism of liberalism? It's this, that the that the idea of freedom posited in classical liberalism is personal, individual, self-expression. And he says both our conservatives these days and our liberals these days have fallen into that same idea of liberty. That it is personal, individualistic self-expression instead of the classical and Christian idea of liberty as self-governance according to virtue. Now, once again, I'm not talking about politics here, but some something clicked in my mind and I said, okay, now I understand some of my, my experiences when I got back to the States. And let me tell you a little bit of what I was used to in Mexico. Um, after many years of, of, of hard work, 
the church began to grow and people were coming to faith in Christ. And then the ball began to roll on its own. And we got to a place where uh, people were regularly wanting to uh, come to faith in Christ and be baptized. And they were saying, what do I need to do to join the church? And so three times a year, we would have a membership class of 18 weeks in preparation for for church membership, and then we would have interviews with the elders, and sometimes, even at that, we would turn people back and say, we don't think you're ready yet, and we would then uh, encourage them in discipleship to come back later and prepare themselves more and to be received. And we were used to people being eager to be part of the church and, and going through those 18 weeks and, and, and accepting the judgment of the elders when they said, no, we think you should wait. And also waiting to take communion until that day when they were received into the church. And so that's what I was used to. And then I got back to the States. And in my first efforts, now a couple years ago, to form a membership here, I received significant pushback and resistance to the idea of church membership, with some people saying, this is not a biblical idea. And then, then resistance to the idea that, that I should have to take a class to prepare myself for church membership. And ours, by the way, isn't, isn't um, 18 weeks here. It's a couple of afternoons, and now modified even more because of this COVID experience. And then also indignation, indignation at the idea that people should be members of a church in order to participate in communion. And I, my, my, my head was kind of reeling as I was trying to understand why this resistance to the idea of church and church membership. And I think it goes back to what Patrick Deneen has identified in this book. He's applying it to the, the sphere of politics, but it seems to me that even in the church we have gotten to the point where freedom... Christian freedom, we interpret it as individualistic self-expression. And if that's the case, then of course the church would not really play any big role in the lives of Christians. And the idea of church membership would be some sort of oppressive structure from the past that we need to cast off. Now, lately things have changed. And after, after me taking a few steps back and saying, okay, I need to try to figure out this situation, I've sensed a different attitude lately. With the original candidates for church membership that were prepared a couple of years ago, patiently waiting, but sometimes elbowing me and saying, Larry, when? How long? To you all, thank you. Thank you, thank you for your patience with this process. Thank you very, very much. And some new believers longing to be baptized. And in addition to that, others coming and taking the initiative and saying, I want to be a member of this church. I didn't even mention it. I got a little scared to mention it. But people coming up to me and saying, what, what, what can I do? How can I be a member of this church? And I'm almost surprised that you want to be? Oh, yes, yeah, great. Well, let's see how we can make that happen. So, we are getting close. We were getting close at the beginning of this, this year, and then we had uh, this pandemic start, and so things got delayed more. But now, as I realize, this may not go away anytime soon. We just need to move ahead. And so we've set the date of December 6th to receive our first members, to baptize our new believers, and to share communion together. And that's why, for these next three weeks, 
I have this mini-series talking about the church. And I know we've talked about the church before, but now we're, we're really trying to, to make this happen, to form ourselves as a church with members. And we're going to talk about three things. Today, church membership. Next week, baptism. And then the week after that, the Lord's Supper. And then we'll have our, our week of receiving our new members and sharing the ordinances that God has given us. So, to do that, we're looking at the end, the response to this sermon of Peter on the day of Pentecost. We've looked at that sermon previously, and what I did was I just, I just read the last verse of that sermon where Peter says, this is his last line, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And that's his closing, closing line of his sermon. And now we have the response to that. Now, before I get to the response, let me just remind you what he preached in this sermon. You recall that the Holy Spirit was poured out God, Jesus, poured out the Spirit on the church, and people were bewildered. And so Peter explained, this is what the prophet Joel had promised, that God in the last days would pour out His Spirit. Verses 14 to 21. Then, verse 22, Jesus of Nazareth demonstrated that He was sent from God. And then, verse 23, He was crucified unjustly, but that was according to God's plan. And then, verses 24 to 35, God raised him from the dead. And then, verse 36, he is the Lord, which means he is God, and he is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. So that's the, that's the sermon. And then the hearers were very distressed to hear that they had just crucified the Messiah. Now, you can imagine how distressing that would be if they really thought that this was the Messiah, and they had just rejected Him. They had just participated in His crucifixion. And so you would think that they would be thinking, which they probably were, well, there's no hope for us. If God sent His Messiah and we rejected Him, we crucified Him, what can we do? And that was their question. Verse 37. They asked that question, what shall we do? Is there any hope for us? Is there any possibility that, that, that we can be redeemed from this, this error of crucifying the Messiah? And Peter urged upon them, in verse 38, repentance. Repentance. That's the first thing he told them. Verse 38, he said, repent. Now, what did they need to repent of? And what is repentance? Repentance is turning from and turning to. They had to repent regarding what they thought about themselves And they had to repent of what they thought about and did to Jesus, the Messiah. So they needed a a 180 in their minds and in their hearts about themselves. Because what do they think about themselves? They had thought about themselves. We're fine. We're Jews. We're okay. God loves us. We're in good with God. They had to realize that, no, they they had just crucified the Messiah. And so they were not in good standing with God. And they had to turn from that, they had to turn from their sin, and they had to understand who Jesus was, that He he wasn't this this renegade preacher, He was actually the one whom God had sent. So they had to have this complete change in their minds, turning from their sin, and their mistaken ideas about themselves and about Jesus, and turn to God. And then He told them to be baptized. And this word baptized, we'll look at it next week, it means to be washed, And so they were familiar with this concept of baptism. 
of washing, because the Jews had many rituals of washings. And then, um, in the recent centuries, they had developed this idea of a ritual baptism by which Gentiles, when they would come into Judaism and become converts, they would bathe themselves. So they would baptize themselves. And then John the Baptist had come along, and what had he done? In the Jordan River, he was washing, he was baptizing people, and it was a baptism of repentance. So they were familiar with baptisms. And so this was not a new idea for them. And uh, Peter said that if you do this, if you respond to this message by turning, by repenting, and by showing that repentance by being baptized, you will receive these things. Verse 38, you will receive forgiveness for your sins. That's, that's remarkable. It says, verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, what sin had they just committed? They just killed the Messiah. Now think about that. Peter is now pronouncing to them that they can be forgiven even for that sin of killing the Messiah. That's an amazing forgiveness, isn't it? That, that they could be forgiven for even that sin. And that should be an encouragement to us as well. No matter how great our sins might be before God and before ourselves or before others, if they could be forgiven for killing the Messiah, then we could be forgiven for our sins as well. So that's the first thing they would receive. They would also receive the Holy Spirit. Now, just a few minutes earlier, they had seen evidence of the Holy Spirit being poured out on the original believers. And Peter's saying, you will receive that same gift. Verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They would also receive the promise. The promise. The promise is for you, and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. The promise of God will be for you and for your children and for the Gentiles as well. We'll probably come back to look at this next week when we talk about baptism and the question of who should be baptized. Now, um, in addition to that, he said that um, they would also have salvation. Verse uh, uh, 40, where he says, save yourselves from this crooked generation. How would they do that? By repenting, by showing their repentance and faith by being baptized. Now, the response here in verse 41 was remarkable. It says, So those who received His word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, this is Peter's uh, not first effort at preaching, but first effort at preaching after having the Holy Spirit poured out upon him. And this is quite a remarkable response, isn't it? 3,000 people responded positively by faith and by repentance and by being baptized. And it calls these people, those who received the word, verse 41, those who believed, verse 44, and those who were saved, verse 47. So these are different, different ways of describing the same people. Now, since the 18th century our methods of evangelizing tend to stop right here. Uh, Something happened in the 18th century called revivalism. And revivalism, on the one hand, was a great movement where 
instead of just preaching in churches, pastors and preachers went out into the fields, went out into the squares, and they preached the gospel to tens of thousands, and there were great awakenings. And you can read about these movements in, in Great Britain and in, in the, the American colonies. Amazing, amazing uh, responses. But at the same time, what happened was evangelizing got disconnected from the church because it was now done in the fields and it was done in the squares, not in the context of the church. And so, since then, our evangelization has tended to stop here. We say, okay, 3,000 responded, we mark them down, and we move on, and we declare them to be Christians. But I want you to notice something here. The, The word that is used here... It says in verse 41, So those who received His word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And we should ask our question, ourselves the question, added to what? Added to what? And the answer is twofold. Later we find the expression that they were added to the Lord. They became the Lord's. But we also understand, if we keep reading, that they were added to the church. They were added to the church. Um, The result was, of this, this response, that there was, after this time, an identifiable group of believers organized in local churches in mutual commitment to each other and to the Lord with a clear recognition of those who belonged to the church and those who did not. Now, instead of using that very long expression to describe these people, we tend to call these people church members. That's a lot more simple, a lot simpler. But what what do we find happening here? The, the, The description that I just read, an identifiable group of believers organized in local churches in mutual commitment to one another and to each other with a clear recognition of those who belong to the church and those who did not. That's what church membership is. That's what we mean. And some people go so far as to say this is not biblical, but actually this is the same word that Paul uses to describe those who are in this group. Look at 1 Corinthians 12, 12-27. He says, you are the body of Christ. You all are the body of Christ and individually what? Members of it. So this is not some add-on. This is language that is thoroughly biblical. Now, let's look at Acts chapter 5, verse, uh, verses 12 to 14, because we have a, an interesting combination here. Acts chapter 5 Verse 12, it says, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. That sounds almost contradictory, doesn't it? It's saying no outsider dared to join these Christians, but at the same time, people were flowing in constantly. So how do we put these two things together? Nobody dared join himself or herself, understanding that this was not an individual action. This was not something that they could do on their own. They could not say, oh, I'm a part. They dared not do that. But at the same time, many were being added 
It wasn't their action. It was the Lord's action. God was adding them to the church. Why? Or how? Through faith and repentance and baptism. God was adding them. It was not their individual declaration, oh, I'm a part of this group. No, it was through a public reception that God added people to the church. Now, throughout Acts and throughout history, until the 18th century, this is how Christians evangelized. By preaching the gospel and admitting believers to local churches, or if there was not a local church, starting new churches. So evangelizing was a church activity up until the 18th century when the two became disconnected. So let's look at the local church here. What did they do? They had certain privileges. If you go back to chapter 2 of, of Acts, Acts 2, 42-47... Those who had been baptized, those who had been added, those who had repented, those who had believed, those in the, the number of the 3,000, they, verse 42, they devoted themselves to four things. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and this devoting themselves was not just hearing it, it was devoting themselves to follow it. And what is the apostles' teaching, by the way? The apostles' teaching is what Jesus told them. And what is what Jesus told them? Jesus, what Jesus taught them is the whole Old Testament fulfilled in Jesus. So, so the apostles' teaching is is the teaching of Scripture, as we have it today. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and the fellowship. Now, usually when we think about fellowship, we we tend to think about um, getting together, and and certainly they got together. But it probably refers this koinonia. It probably refers to the fellowship that they had in each other's. Uh, possessions, that they share their possessions because in, um, let's see, in verse, in verse 44 and 45, it says, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, in koina. And it's the same root of the word koinonia, uh, communion or fellowship. And so it probably refers to the fact that they devoted themselves to sharing what they had with each other. That was the fellowship. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, it says in verse 42, which could be eating with one another, but probably refers to the Lord's Supper. And I say that because if you look at verse 46, it refers to the common meals. Verse 46, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So it probably refers to two different kinds of eating, one the Lord's Supper and the other the meals that they shared together. And finally, they devoted themselves to, how does it translate it here, and to the prayers, the prayers. And um, that, that, that definite article is there. There were set times of prayer, even as we have set times of prayer, and they devoted themselves to be in those set times of prayer. Now, this is, this is a, how they became church members. This is the, these are the privileges they had as church members. And we find that throughout Acts, throughout the whole New Testament, there is a clear distinction between those who are on the inside and those who are on the outside of the church. You recall John 17, Jesus was praying, and he says, I'm not praying for the world right now. He does pray for the world, but he says, I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for those whom you have given me out of the world. I'm praying for my own. So there's a clear distinction between the world and those who were Jesus' own. Uh, Paul when he's talking to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 5, 12 and 13, 
Uh, Paul had told them not to associate with immoral people, and they had un- misunderstood. They were like, oh, we've got to leave the world because there are immoral people all, all over the place. And Paul says, no, 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 no. I'm talking not about the world because I'm not appointed to judge the world. It's not Christian's job to, to pass judgment on the world. We pass judgment on each other as we help each other grow in the faith and as we discipline each other so that we might repent of our sins. He says, he says we're not called to judge the world we're called to judge each other in the sense of the, the church discipline that's practiced there. And there are a very clear distinction between those who are inside and those who are outside. And he talks about those on the outside, those on the inside. So, um, on the one hand, on the one hand, the church maintained its identity as a distinct people, holding tenaciously to unique beliefs and practices and being very clear about the boundaries about who is in the church and who was outside of the church. On the other hand, the church went out and engaged the world by sharing the gospel to everyone that they could find. And so, so we have an interesting combination in the church that we have to maintain. On the one hand, the church is closed. That is to say, the church has specific boundaries around it. A specific boundary line. There are some in the church and are others outside of the church. And there is a clear boundary around it. On the other hand, the church is the most open organization on the planet. Any other organization has requirements that the church does not have. To be a member of the women's club, you have to be what? A woman. Half of the world's population is excluded from participation in the women's club. Okay, the women's club. You, you can't be, men, you just can't be a part of it, okay? So, every organization has its delimitations, okay? Um, to be a resident at John Knox Village, you have to be over 62 years old. I'm sorry to everybody who is under. Some are getting close. Some of us are getting close, right? <laughs> yes, and some are already there. But the rest of you, sorry, need not apply. You cannot participate. Um, the Florida bar is not open to everyone. It's open to those who go to law school and pass the bar exam. Every organization has, has its qualifications, its requirements, except the church. There is no requirement about age. There is no differentiation about sex. There is no requirement about intellectual ability or physical strength, as there might be, let's say, in the NFL or the the NBA or height. There's no qualification about, about educational attainments. There's no qualification about wealth or poverty. None of these national, racial, none of these restrictions are there. The the, the church is the, the most open organization on the whole planet. There is only these, there are only these requirements. What Peter said, to repent, to believe in Jesus, and to be baptized. Those are the requirements from any nation, of any age, of either sex, of of any nationality, the church is open to all who will come through faith and repentance. But we need to be careful. We need to be careful because sometimes the church has 
has lost one of these two ideas. The, the proper closedness and the proper openness. Sometimes the church has lost focus on the fact that, yes, we need to have a specific boundary around who we are and not, not water that down. Sometimes the church thinks that by becoming more like the world that we will gain more people from the world when it's exactly the opposite. The, the churches that, that try to be just like the world no longer have good news to preach to the world. Because they can go watch the same thing on, on, on daytime talk TV or whatever it might be. If, if we give up our distinctness, our di- distinct identity, then we have nothing left to offer that is not what the world is already offering. And at the same time, sometimes the church loses its focus on proper openness. And we become exclusive. Well, we don't want that kind of person in our church, even if it's a believer. And we become closed at the wrong places and open at the wrong places. So, as the church, we we ought not to become like the world and therefore sacrifice anything we have to offer the world. And at the same time, when the church isolates itself and refuses to engage the world, we no longer offer the world what we do have, the gospel that God has entrusted to us for the world. So, when the church maintains its unique identity and aggressively takes the good news to every sort of person without distinction, you know what happens? People become Christians. That's what happens. People become Christians. When we maintain our identity as we are, without compromise, and at the same time are open with the gospel to everybody we find, people respond by becoming Christians. But they become Christians not merely as isolated individuals, but as God adds them to His beloved church. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank You that You have made a people for Yourself throughout history. You've always had a people. We thank You for Your people in, in ancient times, patriarchal times. We thank You that You chose Noah and his family, and You chose Abraham and his descendants, and You, you chose uh, his his, his son Isaac and his son Jacob, and you, you chose the tribes and you made a people for yourself. And, and we thank you that you have expanded that tremendously in our day by, by choosing people from out all the nations. And we pray, O oh God, we pray for your church. We pray for our church and your church. We pray that we would be that distinct people that you have called us to be and not blur the lines not, not compromise our, our, our identity, our distinct identity that, that You've made us as Your called out people. And at the same time, O oh God, that we would be open to all who would come through faith and repentance and baptism and that they would be welcomed into our midst. We pray, O oh God, that You would do in our day, in our church, in our sister churches, what You did in the book of Acts and that You would add to our number those who are being saved. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.